kind of a mini-series on three really obscure books in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, Old Testament is one of those things that sometimes people kind of shy away from because it's, it's, they don't understand it, they really don't appreciate it. And um, if that's kind of where you are, have I got a deal for you, okay? And I got uh, Pastor Ashley's permission to do this. But I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Clearing the Fog, Understanding and Appreciating the Old Testament. And so I'm just making a shameless plug for it, okay? Uh, you can get this at uh, barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. Uh, you can get it from me. I've got some copies, uh, not with me today, but I do. Uh, but anyway, I just recommend that. You can go on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble and just type in Clearing the Fog and the last name Crouch, and it'll pop up, and you can order that. So that's, that's for what it's worth. But really, it's a book that I kind of wrote for people who are not Bible scholars. Uh, I wanted to call it Dummies for, I mean, Old Testament for Dummies, but uh, that's kind of copyrighted material. I couldn't use that. So anyway, we're going to jump into that. We're going to look today in the book of Esther. Uh, there was a man by the name of Haman, and Haman was a wicked, despicable man, and he approached the king of Persia with an idea to exterminate a particular group of people. Uh, the king was King Xerxes. The date was 483 B.C., uh, and the people to be exterminated were the Jews, which raises a number of questions that I want us to, to look at this morning. First of all, what were the Jewish people doing in Persia and not back in Cana, the, the land of promise, the promised land? What were they doing there? Well, just kind of a review of some biblical history. In 587, 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia captured Jerusalem, <coughs> destroyed the city, and carried off into captivity most of the Jewish people that were, had lived in Jerusalem. And so they went off to, to Babylonia. Several years later, the Babylonian government fell, and uh, the Medes and the Persians came in, and their king, King Cyrus, issued a decree that the Jewish people could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Well, some of the Jews went back, but the majority didn't. They stayed in Persia. And so the, the story that we're going to look at today under King Xerxes, this is in uh, 483 B.C., <coughs> and this would be about 103 years after the fall of, of Jerusalem. Uh, probably three generations of, of Jewish people have, been, have uh, lived and, and died during this period of time. <coughs> so we come to this story. The second question that I want to wrestle with is, why did Haman hate the Jewish people? That's who he wanted to exterminate, the Jews. We're going to find that answer in the third chapter of the book of Esther, beginning at verse 1. The text says this, that sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the kingdom. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show respect whenever he passed by, for the king, so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. 
So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. <coughs> when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So why would Mordecai not bow down to, to, uh, to Haman? I mean, there are, there are a number of incidents, for instance, in the Old Testament where uh, Jewish people would bow out of respect to government officials. That was just, you know, it was, it was the thing doing. But here is Mordecai, and he is refusing to show respect to, to this government official. So what gives here? Well, what's the story here? Well, the text tells us that Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And the name Agagite really gives to us a clue because Haman's ancestors were the ancient enemies of, of Israel, the Amalekites. <coughs> the Amalekites um, were a people, a tribe that God had given some very specific instructions to um, to Israel to, quote, destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven, end quote. That's Deuteronomy 25. Years later, after that edict, the prophet Samuel personally executes King Agag of the Amalekites when King Saul of Israel refused to do that. And so a descendant of the royal line of Agag was called an Agagite. And so it tells us that Haman was the royal lineage of this ancient enemy of Israel, the Amalekites. And so Mordecai wasn't about to bow down to an enemy. That's what he was doing. Now, as you can imagine, as you can see from this text, that really ticked Haman off. I mean, he was angry. And so he was intent on killing not just Mordecai, but he wanted to wipe out the entire Jewish people who were living in the kingdom, in the, in the Persian kingdom. So he went to the king, and he convinced the king of, of this plan, you know, that, uh, the, to pass an edict that would make, you know, the pursuit of the Jews come, some kind of a, a hunting season, kind of like the Hunger Games, where it would be fair game to, on a certain day to go forth and, and to search out the Jews and to kill them without any, any uh, uh, fear of a repercussion. So that gives you a little background of the story. But the heart of the story in the, in the book of Esther, I think, is found in chapter 4 and primarily in verse 13 and 14. In fact, that would, to me, would be the key verses in the entire book. So I want us to go now to look at the key, or, or really the heart of the book. Um, so in Mordecai, who's the arch enemy of Haman, learns of this edict that has been passed. He immediately uh, sends word to his cousin Hadassah, who also is called Esther. And Esther was a Jewess, but she was also the queen. And evidently she knew nothing of the decree, so he sent a copy to her so that she could read it. And, uh, and then he implored Esther, go into King Xerxes and plead our case. We ask him to rescind this edict. The only problem was that King Esther was not on the schedule to see the king. Uh, and in verse 11, uh, Esther sends a messenger back to her cousin uh, Mordecai to remind her 
uh, her uncle, look in verse 11, that all the king's officials and even the people in the province know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathath, the, the messenger, gave Esther's message to Mordecai. See, to go into the court of the king without an invitation was to risk death. And so for Esther to do that would be a huge risk. And not, that doesn't even take into account the fact that she was going to go in and she was going to ask him to change his mind on an edict that had already been passed, that had been sealed with the king's seal. But listen to the message that Mordecai, how he responded back to Esther in verse 13 and 14. It says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. What a powerful statement. I mean, there is so much in this story that we could dive into, but I want to zero, using that, that phrase right there, zero in and focus on two simple yet eternally profound truths. And the first of these is simply this. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of history for the accomplishment of his purposes. That is, God is sovereignly orchestrating all of history for the accomplishment of his purposes. And, and when I say that, each part of that is important. For it says that God is sovereignly, that is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and that means he is totally in control. I mean, we look at the world today, and it looks like things are just spinning out of control. But if you and I would, could glimpse into heaven, we would see that God's hands are still on the controls, that he is absolutely in control, and he holds everything in his hand. He holds the universe in his hand. He holds the stars, the planets. He holds the solar systems. He holds you and he holds me, our jobs, our families. All are in his hands. He holds the nations in his hands. And, and I think that's good news for a time like this. When, when all that's going on around us. I mean, he's holding the nations, he's holding the world leaders, he's holding the economy in his hands. He holds the crisis in our government, the, cri the tension between the United States and China, the, the war in the Ukraine. All of that is in God's hands. So do you see what I'm saying here? God is sovereign and he's orchestrating all of history. See, God is the divine maestro, and, and he knows each part that needs to be played. He knows who is playing the part, and he knows how it's going to turn out. And note, it will turn out for the accomplishment of his purposes. You see, things in this world are not just happening haphazardly. We may think that's to be true, but no, God is in control. He's orchestrating all of history toward the accomplishment of his purposes in this world. We see that again in Mordecai's statement there in verse 14 when he says, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Mordecai is sure of this. All of this is happening under God's watchful care. And uh, he has a purpose in all of this. And he's not going to let his people be annihilated. That's not going to happen. No, God is in control, and he's right in the middle of the action. 
Now, one of the things about the book of Esther is that it has been, it has been criticized because nowhere in the book is the name God mentioned at all. And so people say, well, why is it even in there? What I want you to see is that the fingerprints of God are all over this book. Everywhere you look, I mean, the book of Esther is a divine drama of cosmic coincidences at every turn. Think with me on it. How did Esther become queen? Well, it just so happened that the original queen, Queen Vashti, made the king upset. And it so happened that the king kicked her out. And it so happened that a need arose for a new queen. And uh, in her Esther, who just so happened to be a beautiful Jewish girl who won the heart of the king and who became queen and beat out all the other beautiful women in the kingdom. Esther just happened to be Mordecai's cousin. And Mordecai just happened to hear a plot to kill the king. And Mordecai just happened to tell Queen Esther and Queen Esther just happened to tell the king, and the king's life was saved. And it just so happened that the story of, of Mordecai saving the king's life was recorded in a book. And it just so happened at that point that Mordecai was not honored. Hmm. Inner Haman. And it just so happened that he is elevated to a prominent role in the kingdom. And he becomes very angry because Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so Haman creates this plot to have the king kill the Jews and kill Mordecai. <clears throat> and it just so happens that he wants to be personally involved in it, so he builds this gallows so that he can impale Mordecai on those gallows. Meanwhile, that very night, the king can't sleep. And he says, hey, somebody read me a story. And it just so happens that the man who goes gets a book of bedtime stories picks the book with the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, have we honored that man Mordecai? We haven't. Well, we need to do that immediately. He plans to do it the next morning. And as the sun rises, just as the king is preparing to honor Mordecai, Guess who just happens to show up at the king's gate? It's Haman. And the king says, hey, man. Hey, man, what would you do for somebody that you really want to honor as special? And Haman thinks, well, he's talking about me. I'm the one he wants to honor. He says, well, I would put his royal, your royal robes on him, put him on your horse, and parade him around the town. And uh, so what does the king say? Great idea. Do that for Mordecai. And suddenly, Haman finds himself parading his, this guy that he intensely hates around the city in the king's robes on the king's horse. But Haman still has hope because he's been invited to a private banquet, just the king and the queen. And so he thinks, I still must be somebody special in the kingdom. That is, until he gets to the banquet. And then right in the middle of the banquet, Queen Esther says, King We've got a problem. You have issued a decree to kill the Jews, and your wife is a Jew. And the king becomes furious, and he says, Who made me do that? And Esther goes, King is furious. He leaves, and in the meantime, Haman falls at the foot of the couch where 
Queen Esther is, is reclining and begs for his life. Well, the king comes back in, and he thinks that Haman is assaulting his wife. And so he says, that's it. You're going to be hung. And it just so happens there's a gallows that's been erected. And it just so happens within a couple of hours, Haman is impaled on that gallows. Friends, you can't write a better story than that. God's fingerprints are all over that. That's just not coincidence. That's divine orchestration. And, and do you see what the book of Esther is teaching us about history? History has been rigged by God. History has been rigged by God, and he's rigged it for a reason. History is his story. And, and it's about God saving a people for his glory so that all the world can know that he and he alone is God. And so God is sovereignly orchestrating all of history for the accomplishment of his purposes. That is, God is carrying out his purpose. <clears throat> Nothing is outside of his control. And God is in the business, folks, of gathering a family that will honor him and love him for all of eternity. And nothing's going to stand in the way of, of God's purpose of gathering that forever family. Um, nothing's going to stop the purposes and the plans of God. Folks, God is still in control in spite of everything that you and I see going on in our world today. God's in control. Folks, terrorist attacks are not going to stop God's purposes. Court decisions against Christianity are not going to thwart God's plans. The media assaults, uh, the ACLU and the BLM and the LBGTQ and all of that, the modern atheistic movement, uh, well, the, this transgender mess, the, the clueless politicians around us, anti-Christian school boards and administrators, none of these things will stand in the way of God's purposes in history. Let me narrow it down even a little bit more. Think about your own life, okay? God is orchestrating your life to accomplish his purposes. Have you ever thought that? that? That your education, your job, your career, who you married, where you live, who are the people that you hang with, those are all there because God has your life in his hands and he's working in your life to accomplish his purposes in this world. <clears throat> Which really leads to this second truth and that is simply this. Each of us has a part to play that accomplishes the purposes of God <coughs> in the world. Each of us has a part to play. Let's look back at, at Mordecai's words to Esther again in verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other, Christ all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He said this, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai tells her, Esther, God will bring deliverance and relief to his people, but if you keep quiet, it will come not from you, but from some other place. God will find another source. <clears throat> but could it just be, Esther, that God has orchestrated all of this? You know, Queen Vashti refusing to go in and entertain the king's friends and the king kicking her out and you being selected as queen. Could it not be that God orchestrated all of this to make you king, a queen for this very moment that you might rescue your people? 
In other words, he said, could it be that you are queen for precisely this moment in God's orchestration in history? And look how Esther replied to him in verse 16. She said to Mordecai through the messenger, Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same, and then, though it is against the law, I will go in and to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Esther said, yes, this could very well be the part that I am to play in the history of God's working in history, and I am willing to pay I'm willing to play my part regardless of what it might cost me. Well, the rest of the story, <coughs> of course, is pretty simple. You know, the king is delighted to see Esther. He, he um, extends the scepter, and she goes into his presence. And then, you know, after two different banquets and Haman's put to death, Esther finally asks the king to rescind that order to exterminate the Jewish people. The only problem with that is that that order has been written in, quote, the law of the Medes and Persians, which meant it was a law that could not be reversed. And so instead, the king allowed Esther and Mordecai. Now, Mordecai has now become the new right-hand man to the king, okay? He's allowing them to write a new edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves on that particular day when this, uh, this slaughter was to take place. And so instead of the Jews being slaughtered on March the 7th, excuse me, March 7th, <clears throat> when these edicts come to pass, instead of them being slaughtered, they slaughter their enemies. They annihilate their enemies. So great was the victory on that day that the king says, hey, you need a little more time. Let's go to March 8th. And so for two full days, the Jewish people defended themselves against their enemies. And arising out of this, these dates of March 7 and March 8 comes the Jewish festival of Purim, uh, which was traditionally celebrated on March 8th, the day after those edicts were put in, in place. And it's interesting that the word Purim comes from a term that means casting lots. And it signifies that, that Haman had cast lots, had thrown dice to pick that particular date for the annihilation of the Jews. And instead, it became a day when the Jewish people were vindicated against their enemies. And so instead of the Jews being annihilated, the enemies were wiped out and, uh, instead. And so the Feast of Purim, therefore, is a joyous celebration of the deliverance of the Jewish people through the hands of Esther, who was willing to risk her life to play her part in God's timetable of history. See, this was a critical time in the history of God's people Israel. It was an unprecedented time of challenge and difficulty. And Esther played the part that God wanted her to play so that he could do, could do through her what he wanted to accomplish in that day and in that time. <clears throat> Folks, this story is our story. Um, this is as contemporary as this morning's newspaper. Because we too are living in an unprecedented time of challenge and difficulties. We're living at a time in the United States when, and this is just beginning, when it has become open hunting season against Christians. Um, you know, the media so often treats Christianity with such disdain. I mean, you go to a Dodger baseball game and you honor the sisters of 
perpetual wickedness for their wickedness and then you turn around and Christians are being arrested for taking a stand for right and for morality in our country these are difficult days that we're facing folks and people all around us are either ignoring God or they're rejecting God or they're blaspheming God you watch television and it just almost episode after episode there is some slam against Christians and Christianity we're living in a time when very few people are putting their trust in a loving Heavenly Father who loved them so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price to show his love the death of his one and only son Jesus Christ and so these are challenging days for believers <clears throat> everywhere you look and yet this truth still remains God is still sovereign and he is orchestrating all of history according to his purpose have you ever thought for a moment what does God think about all of this that's going on in our world today against his people listen to these words from Psalm 2 beginning at verse 1 why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing but that that is a statement of our day and time the nations are in an uproar and the people devising vain things the kings of the earth that's the leaders <coughs> take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed that's Jesus Christ saying let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us in other words let's break off the handcuffs let's break off the chains we don't want to be enslaved to the Lordship of Jesus Christ we don't want him as Lord look at verse 4 he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord scoffs at them you realize that God is just sitting up there saying, oh, you poor, poor, stupid people. Don't you know what I have in store for you? Don't you know what I've prepared for you? Why, why, why are you rebelling against me? It says that he laughs. He scoffs. Folks, there is coming a day when God's patience is going to run out. There's coming a day of judgment. And, uh, but until the Lord Jesus Christ returns as judge of all the earth, the second truth remains as well, that each one of us has a part to play in the accomplishment of God's purposes in this world. God's got a plan for you. God's got a purpose for your life. Um, you know, it would have been so easy if the moment you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if God had just taken you on to heaven to be with him. Man, you wouldn't have to stay here in this world with all the trouble and all the strife and sickness and the economic turmoil and struggling to make ends meet and, and all. You could just be on in heaven with him. But he's left you here for a reason. He's left you here for a purpose. And that is to be his witnesses, telling other people where they can find hope, <laughs> where they can find the truth in Jesus Christ. With Paul, we all need to embrace our purpose and say with him in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. May I simply challenge you, stand strong in your faith in Jesus Christ in these days. May you, may you be, uh, be firm in sharing Jesus Christ. Be bold in sharing the light of Jesus Christ you're hoping Jesus Christ with the people around you may you continue to shine forth brightly 
in the darkness of our world around us. And folks, we hold on to this truth that you are here for such a time as this. Let's bow for prayer.